Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 28th of May, 2018. I'm Joe, and with me are Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. And no failing, because he has worked himself half to death, unfortunately, and he is in his sick bed. Uh, he will be missed, but uh, he'll be back. Oh, no, he won't be back next time, because it'll be Foss Talk Live, so you won't hear from him for a while, but hopefully he'll get better soon. Uh, we have got an interview coming up with Dalton Durst from the UBports project about Ubuntu Touch. That will be coming up later. But first, let's get into some news. And first of all, it is quite a good time for Qt, I would say, in terms of the Linux desktop, because we've got KDE 5.13 beta, which is out. That's almost ready. And I'm sure that Phelan put this in. But Graham, I'm hoping you're looking forward to uh, using this on a regular basis soon. Yes, I am. I know that they're going to overhaul the system settings, which it's it's a ridiculous system in KDE. It's basically, I mean, you used the uh, word behemoth just before we started recording, and it's a behemoth of a setting system in KDE. There's kind of very little planning to it. Very, It's very hard to find anything. Um, it'll be great that it gets a decent usability overhaul that at least shows you where something might be. Try changing the fonts or the color or the drop shadow. But there's all kinds of other stuff. Um, there's like browser in- integration with the download panel, um, lots of small things, new login screens, which I'm never very excited for, KWIN, EGL acceleration, um, some new Discover app, which I'm not too bothered about either. But, you know, lots of small changes to keep KDE on top. Well, yeah, that seems to be the headline here. Every time I'm talking about a new KDE Plasma release, it seems to be more slow and steady improvements that have just taken it from the original Plasma 5 release to now. And it just keeps getting better and better and more and more attractive to me. I feel a bit uncomfortable with this situation because really for so long, KDE was just the butt of many, many jokes. And quite understandably, I think it always took a certain kind of personality type to use KDE. And I'd rather be the underdog um, and, you know, not having to... Um, make excuses for for the desktop environment that I've chosen, and it's it's a weird situation. So, Will, you're in charge of a distro that is running GNOME. Presumably, you're keeping an eye, at least, on what uh, the KDE camp are doing. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've had a quick look at uh, 5.13, and it looks really sharp. Um, there's some nice new features in there, as you've already said. Um, the support for the GTK menu integration looks really good, and it makes uh, GNOME apps work that little bit easier, and they look, look that little bit more native. And um, there's also support for snap colon slash slash URLs as well. So if you're um, browsing the Snap Store on uh, in your browser, then you can click on the install links and it will take you straight into Discover, which is a nice ease of use feature, I think. If I had a bell, I'd ding it. It took you, what, two <laughs> seconds <laughs> to mention Snaps. But no, it's, it seems to be the future. And um, yeah, it's good to see that they're embracing that, uh, as well as Flatpak as well in Discover. You know, they're, they're sort of hedging their bets with KDE. So it's it's good to see that as well. It's, um, it's, it's getting more and more attractive to me. What can I say? I'm happy with XFCE, but looking around at what else is out there, uh, the KDE Plasma desktop just seems to be really great and having spoken to jonathan riddle on the last late night linux extra get the plug in um i'm I'm even more confident about it although speaking to sean about xfce and zubuntu i'm uh, i think i'll be all right there for a little while but another cute based desktop is lx cute and that has recently had a release 0.13 and 
that for me is a great release. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to check it out, but it's it's like the Plasma Desktop, but just really stripped down and a little bit like LXDE, mm. which isn't a surprise that this is going to be used in the next Lubuntu 18.10. And it just feels ready. I, I tried out the uh, 18.10 daily image, and it's, you know, we're, we're almost, what, five months away from that release. And it's working fine for me. I could use it as a daily driver, I think. So again, more great stuff on the cute front. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't used the latest release, um, I, but I really love the idea of um, Razer Cute when it came out. It, it's great for low-powered machines if you don't want to use X, XFC for whatever reason. Yeah, but if you want to be in the Cute world, if if you are used to using Cute applications and you want a lightweight desktop, even lighter than KDE can be, or Plasma, should I say, then it just seems an absolutely perfect choice. Yeah, I'll be very interested to see the final release of Lubuntu 18.10 to see how good it is because it's already pretty spot on as far as I can see. So uh, it's definitely one to watch. And as much as I've always loved LXDE and I could use it, it's just being left behind, unfortunately. And apart from the Raspberry Pi Foundation, there seems to be no one giving it any love. So it seems to be time to move over. So I think it's time to accept the death of LXDE at this point or certainly soon. What's holding you back? I mean, it's cute just still too big and too fat would you rather keep it minimal or keep it old school mosaic like well i just don't like change and the thing Mm. is that i'm using xfce and i'm perfectly happy with it and as long as that is maintained and supports applications that i want to use then i'm going to keep using it and on really old hardware I would use LXDE or if I want a, a semi-headless box, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but just occasionally I want to have a box that's kind of mostly a server, but then occasionally I'll want to look the odd thing up or look at the odd PDF or whatever. LXDE has been my go-to for that. Um, but as that becomes less and less relevant, as it gets less and less well-supported, I think that it's going to have to be replaced in my life with LXQt. And I was a little bit skeptical about that at first, but now they seem to find out all of the bugs and problems that I had with it. And so now I, I could actually see myself using it, not as my main desktop, but certainly on the odd machine that I want to have semi-headless or just do the odd little thing on. Seems like a good fit for a Raspberry Pi. Is there a, a an ARM build of, I guess, Lubuntu 18.10 ready to try out? That's a good question. I should probably know that, but I don't know. Um, I'll have to look it up afterwards, or I'm sure someone will let us know. But yeah, that does seem like a good good idea. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been critical before of uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundation's decision to keep going with LXDE and not embrace new technologies. So maybe they could somehow try and get LXQ working on um, Raspbian. It's certainly what I would do if I was running that distro, I think. Yeah, and I think that's a really good fit for your semi-headless box. Um, there are so many tasks that are run on Raspberry Pis which are just command line or, you know, cron jobs running away in the background. But just occasionally, if you need to administer that box, it's a lot easier to do it via the GUI than it is via the CLI. Um, and I think this is a great fit for that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, let's talk about what is not that exciting, but I think is actually pretty big news, portable services, which has arrived or is due to arrive in system D, which is sort of containerized system services as part of the init system. It's 
been accused of being feature creep. It's I've I've heard people say that Red Hat are just trying to completely control Linux at this point. I, I don't know where I stand on it really. It's it seems a bit too early to call, but it, it something doesn't quite feel right to me about this. Well, I know what you mean. Um, I don't know too much about it either, and but I quite like a lot of the way that System D has gone and implemented things. And if this goes the same way, certainly those startup processes and their their the lack of isolation or the lack of or relying on Cheroot, for example, it could do with some improvement. And you know, maybe that's what this is. Well, it's early days for this, so we'll have to see exactly what happens with it. But something doesn't quite feel right to me. But uh, let's move on to talk about something more positive, Asteroid OS, and that has reached 1.0. Asteroid OS is a replacement for watch firmware, specifically on a few different Android Wear or Wear OS, whatever you want to call it, watches, including one of mine. Oh, cool. Which is the Sony Smartwatch 3. And unfortunately, it is the least well-supported of all of them, but it is really cool because it's not just like how CyanogenMod was and Lineage OS is, which is kind of based on the open source bits of Android. Um, this is completely built from scratch um, using the open embedded project, Linux, Systemd, uh, Wayland, Qt. It is a proper Linux box running on your wrist. And if all you want is just a smartwatch, then that's fine. But it is possible to run Docker on this thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It is so cool. And um, I actually spoke to the developer of this, and uh, this is going to get really mind-fucking now because you will hear that in about a week when I release Late Night Linux Extra Episode 3. But he's quite a young developer uh, based in France, and he is a real one to watch because this this is just such a cool project. Even the least well-supported one works really well and is missing a couple of features. So yeah, definitely, if you've got one of the supported watches, then do check it out. Well, I haven't got a smartwatch, but I've been thinking about maybe I should go buy one. So I might be able to pick up uh, a second-hand one on eBay uh, and take it for a spin. Yeah, there are quite a few different ones supported. The LG G-Watch Urbane and the standard G-Watch, they are the best supported um and then there's various other azus ones uh and my one so yeah it looks like the lg g watch urbane is your best bet that's certainly the best looking one of all of them and you can probably pick that up fairly affordably at this point so yeah get on that will and uh, you can run quake on it as well i understand <laughs> well it's just a linux box so yeah you can do what you like with it you could probably run like a lemp stack on it this could uh, could use a lot of time playing with this, I think. Yeah, it's it's something you could go down a real rabbit hole with. For me, it's just something that I want to replace aging firmware that hasn't been patched with. Because mm -hmm. uh, Blueborn, um, was it Crack the Wi-Fi one? There's no chance I'm getting any patches for those. And that's why I basically stopped using it, especially anywhere where I'm going to see any of you lot, dear listener, because I'm worried that you're going to hack into my phone or whatever um, via this thing. Whereas with some sort of aftermarket firmware like Asteroid OS, uh, there's more chance of getting patches. Although we did get into that in the interview and um, you are sort of dependent on the lower level stuff, the kernel and the drivers, which are not getting updated. But at least it's something, at least it's a little bit more secure than an ancient Android installation. 
Um, so it's really cool to see this. It seems quite niche because smartwatches haven't done massively well, but there are quite a lot of us nerdy types out there. And I really want to see this do well because it's a totally open source alternative, Linux-based OS. It's just brilliant. So do check it out if you've got a smartwatch and it's supported. But speaking of Android, uh, Huawei um, have basically said, fuck you, custom wrong community. Um, they are locking down their bootloaders. So from around about now-ish, any of their new phones that they sell, they won't supply unlock codes for the bootloaders, which means that you're not going to be able to flash any custom ROMs on it. So you're just totally beholden to them for any software updates. And they've got just the lamest explanation ever. It's They say, um, in order to deliver the best user experience and prevent users from experiencing possible issues that could arise from ROM flashing, including system failure, stuttering, worsened battery performance, and risk of data being compromised, Huawei will cease providing bootloader unlock codes for devices launched after the 25th of May 2018. So, okay, that is fair enough that they don't want people to flash custom ROMs and have a, a terrible experience. But come on, if you're going to go to the hassle of unlocking the bootloader by going to the site and getting the code and everything, then you obviously know what you're doing, or at least you understand the risks. And I just don't understand why they're doing this. I've, I've put this in the news just to kind of warn people off. Um, don't think you can get a nice cheap Huawei and, and run Lineage or some other custom ROM on it because they just don't give a shit about the custom ROM scene anymore. Do they give a shit about updating their the rest of their phones? Do they push out updates on a regular basis? I, I don't know. I haven't used a Huawei device, but um, I imagine that they push out whatever version of firmware that's on it, and then that's pretty much your lot. Well, I think certainly on the lower-end phones, that's the situation, yeah. I think on the slightly higher-end ones, you might get a few updates, but they're not known for being particularly good. So it just seems like a very foolish decision by them because it just means that enthusiasts are just going to look elsewhere. They're going to go to OnePlus or something. They must be aware of the size of the market that they're cutting off, though, and they've made a calculated risk. I, I doubt it's a risk. It probably is a bit of an overhead for them, maybe third-party sellers selling unlocked bootloaded phones running Lineage or something. Possibly, yeah. And it's probably, uh, yeah, they've probably done the maths. You're right, that the small number of enthusiasts who actually care about this stuff who will happily go away and take the risks and understand the risks versus those who will do just enough Googling to get themselves in trouble and then contact customer services. And there's probably quite a big overhead there of having to deal with them. Even if it's only tens of thousands of dollars a year, that's tens of thousands of dollars that they can avoid by just not letting people unlock them at all. So yeah, you're probably right that the maths just don't add up and, um, so fuck you if you want to run custom ROMs on their phones. And you've only got, um, I think, 60 days if you've got an existing phone to get an unlock code, otherwise they're going to stop doing them. So it's just a, a real change because they have historically been quite good at unlocking their bootloaders, even their real low-end phones. So it just seems like a, a bizarre shift to me, but there we are. We'll see. If some Maybe somebody will come up with a workaround for this problem. I don't know if there are enough devices out there and people are passionate enough about those sorts of devices to, to bother trying to crack it, but uh, somebody somewhere will have a go. Well, yeah, and if you've got enough exploits remaining, then maybe you can get root access to it and unlock the bootloader that way, but it just adds a lot of hassle. And the really annoying thing is for most of the people listening to this show is 
that if you want to do that, you'll almost certainly have to use a tool on Windows to do it because that's how the custom ROM scene works. If it's not an unlockable bootloader and you know if it's not just a case of ADB and Fastboot, then you're having to use dodgy Windows tools that you've downloaded from some random site in order to actually get these bootloaders unlocked. I've experienced that myself with an LG phone that I tried to do from a friend and um, it's just a nightmare. So don't buy Huawei phones anymore is my <laughs> advice. Um, all right, well, let's end the news with uh, one that is not really relevant to my interests, but uh, I believe is slightly relevant to you guys. And that is that Steam Link is now available as an Android app, although not on iOS because they submitted it mm. to the uh, the iOS store, whatever it's called, the App Store. And Apple, I think they let them have it for a little bit and then decided that they didn't want to have it in there because it competed with them. So you can only do this on Android. But um, well, who who would be listening to this or be taking part in this podcast with an iPhone, eh? <laughs> <clears throat> well, honestly. But um, yeah, you guys are gamers. Is this um, exciting to you that you can run um, Steam games on your Android devices? I think you hit on the main story, actually, the fact that, you know, Apple's walled garden won't let you, even if you want to. <laughs> um, I think it's still cool. I mean, I've got a Steam link myself because my PC is really big and noisy and lives in the loft. Um, you know, and it works wonderfully well. I haven't tried the Android app, but, um, you know, pair it with a Bluetooth controller and it will probably work, you know, if you're out and about and away from your machine, as long as you've got the the upload bandwidth. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. I think it has to be on the same LAN, though, to actually work. Um, so I think it's more aimed at TV devices rather than being out and about on your phone or whatever. Um, I'm not sure about that, though. It may work over the internet. You but, could run um, a VPN to your home network from your on your phone. It may work. Maybe. I don't know what the lag would be like yeah. there, though. You might have pretty bad latency. But um, I've done it with the original Steam Link, and it was fine. Ah, right. So it might actually be all right with this, then. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's all going to be dependent on your network and the, the conditions of the network, of course. But I think, in theory, it should work. Is this another nail in the coffin of Steam boxes, though, I wonder? Because the Steam Link itself was a massive success, and that was announced at around the same time as Steam OS, and and that just seemed to be what people actually want. They want to be able to exactly what you've done, Graham, is have a PC off in some other room that's churning away, using loads of power, producing loads of heat and loads of noise, and then this really discreet box that sits under your TV and lets you just stream it over your LAN. Um, uh, and it just seems like it's another way to make that more convenient rather than having the actual yeah. PC that's doing the work under your telly um, in this fairly near. Some of them actually look quite nice, didn't they? These uh, Steam boxes that have now basically been shelved. And it's, it just seems a shame to me because it could have potentially got more people into Linux, whereas now uh, they're just going to be using Windows on the, um, the effectively the server machine and the client's going to be android or the um proprietary steam box i think valve has got to where it wanted to be with um steam os um the steam boxes i don't know whether that was any real part of their business plan other than pushing the idea of steam os and moving people over to linux as a development platform and i think it's generally worked they're keeping up to date with you know the steam client on linux steam vr runs on linux which i think is important so i, I imagine in the i'm totally imagining this in my head in the background valve is making sure there's some kind of parity in the linux ecosystem to the way they're developing on linux and this to hedge to hedge their future 
future in the same way that they created, you know, Steam OS and Steam Boxes. And I imagine that's where they want to be with or without Steam Boxes or the commercialization of Steam OS. Well, this is all completely irrelevant to me because I'm not a child and I do not play games. <laughs> like you lot. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get some hate mail for that again. <laughs> Um, all right, so on to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. The Patreon has grown um, not insignificantly, shall we say, since uh, Late Night Linux Extra was launched. So that um, has very much appreciated. And speaking of Patreon, I uh, have tried to do a new feature. I've been teasing it for a couple of episodes now, and that is ad-free feeds. So what that means is if I have configured it correctly, which I think I have, um, and please forgive me if I fuck this up, but the idea is once I finish editing the show, I'm going to cut out any adverts, produce another MP3, upload that to Patreon, and then anyone who is supporting us at $5 or more will be able to have access to that. And I think you can get a custom RSS feed that you can copy-paste into your podcast player, and then you... In theory, if it all works, we'll never have to hear adverts again. So please forgive me if I fucked it up and I will do my best to make it work as soon as possible, almost certainly before the next episode. But this is totally new to me because Patreon I just set up and just forgot about. But um, yeah, hopefully that's going to work. Um, you can go to latenightlinux.com support to find the link to that Patreon. That does leave an awkward situation with people who are supporting in other ways, such as PayPal. I don't have an easy way to deliver you an MP3 with no ads. If you are supporting at more than $5, which is about three and a half quid, I think, uh, I don't know, contact me. And if we'll try and work something out, you're probably technical enough to tell me how to do it in terms of RSS feeds and everything. But um, worst case scenario, I can just literally email it to you or something um, or link you to some hidden directory somewhere on the site. Uh, but this is an experiment. I hope it works well. We'll just have to see how it goes. Um, you can get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact to tell me how much I fucked that all up. Um, uh, so Late Night Linux Extra, I've plugged it a little bit already. Um, uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, please do. It is a show that is happening on the other week when we're not doing this. So you'll be hearing this or you'll be downloading this probably sort of Monday night, Tuesday-ish. And the idea is that next week there'll be Late Night Linux Extra. And so you'll be able to have this weekly. Um, if you go to latenightlinux.com slash feeds with an S, you'll find the various RSS feeds. If you just want that show or if you want both shows combined um, and they're all on iTunes, the idea of that show is to try and grow it to a point where it can get adverts and uh, be really well downloaded um, it's not doing anywhere near as well as the main show, which is not a huge surprise. Um, but uh, the plan is to stick with it, hopefully, until it does. Um, so do definitely check that out. Um, so uh, Foss Talk Live as well. Um, that is an event that is coming up on the 9th of June, which is very, very soon. That's before the next episode. In fact, the next episode will be uh, the episode from that all being well and uh you two are both coming to this aren't you yay yeah and so there's going to be uh us and linux voice whoever they are and ubuntu podcast and also stuart language and dave mega slippers and maris quabeck and me will do some sort of drunken mashup at the end 
And it's going to be a great night. It's sold out. And by sold out, I mean, all the free tickets have gone. But uh, it's in King's Cross in London, anyway, in uh, just over a week. So if you come to that and you don't have a ticket, the worst case scenario is you're going to be in a pub with a load of Linux geeks and having a few drinks. But realistically, you'll probably be able to get into at least some of the shows or stand on the stairs or something and cause a fire hazard. So if you've ordered tickets and are now not going to come, then please do cancel them because some other people will want to reserve them. But yeah, hopefully that's going to be a pretty cool night very soon. And so the last bit of admin then, um, Christoph Zimmermann asked us to mention the uh, Open Heinruhr, I think that's how you say it, conference, which is taking place on the 3rd and 4th of November in Oberhausen in Germany. And he says, now in its eighth iteration, the Open Heinruhr conference is the place to be to catch up on FOSS technology, have a chat with projects exhibiting, meeting old friends and making new ones, and generally having an excellent time. The call for presentations has been published. Interested parties can submit ideas for talks until the end of September. As usual, we will have an interesting collection of keynotes, details to be announced during the course of the summer. Stay tuned. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So if you're in Germany... I don't even know where Oberhausen is. Um, probably should have looked that up. But yeah, if you're in Germany, go and check that out. So this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they sell computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 1804. And I say it every time, but I mean it. They are a company who cares about Linux. This is all they do. They sell machines running Linux. It's not a side project. They don't also sell Windows machines. They just sell Linux machines. And they have a huge range of laptops from affordable stuff that's ideal for just a bit of light browsing and emailing, all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA graphics cards in them that can do all sorts, graphic design, 3D art, video editing, machine learning, all sorts. And they even have a couple of desktops and a couple of servers, and everything is configurable more or less with amounts of RAM and CPUs and storage, so you can really find anything to suit your budget and needs. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then do mention as a checkout, there's a little drop down. you can select Late Night Linux so they know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Okay, so we've got a pre-recorded interview now that uh, Will and I did earlier in the week. Graham was outside drinking beer and maybe riding his bike or something. Uh, so let's hear that now. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Dalton Durst, who is the project manager and a developer at UbiPort. So welcome to the show, Dalton. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here today. So I suppose we should start with a bit of the history of UbiPorts and Ubuntu Touch. Uh, it was originally uh, just Marius, wasn't it? Marius Gripscard, uh, who was um, sort of porting Ubuntu Touch to unsupported devices like the OnePlus One, and that's where the name UbiPorts comes from. Right. So as many know, Ubuntu Touch originally started as Ubuntu for Android in 2012, which was more of the... It was more like Maru OS in a way, where both Ubuntu and Android ran at the same time on the same phone. Um, and what we know today really began in 2014, uh, where Android is running in a container and it's only used for drivers. 
Marius Gripsgaard started the UbiPorts project around 2015. He set up the website and the forums, and it was really a place for developers to go to combine their information on Ubuntu Touch and porting it to new devices. And then fast forward to April 2017, when Canonical pulled the plug on Ubuntu Touch, and uh, Marius and a few of you just decided to pick up the ball and run with it. Yeah, that was it. I mean, before that, I joined the project around September 2016, mostly uh, inspired by Chris Fisher doing a sponsor spot for Ting on the Linux Action Show. Uh, he said in the sponsor spot that the Nexus 5X would be a great phone for Ubuntu Touch. And I figured, well, I've got that in my pocket. And fast forward today, and here we are. I have a title in the project and everything. So can you talk us through what happened on the day that you heard that Canonical were to stop development and what went through your mind and how you decided that you were going to get involved and really contribute loads to UbiPorts? Ah, uh, the where were you when Unity died question. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually at work at the time. I was uh, doing more of a network administrator position. And at the time, I was in school for network administration rather than software development. So after the drop of Unity, uh, we all kind of sat around for a day or two kind of saying, well, what do we do now? And well, the obvious answer was, I guess, pick it up and keep going because whoever lets an open source project die, right? That was quite a lot of responsibility to take on though, wasn't it? So it was a big deal to pick up the project. There was a lot of things that weren't uh, upstream as a lot of people were very public and very vocal about while Ubuntu Touch was in Canonical's hands. So we knew that there were a lot of things that we would have to change and a lot of things that we would continue to build on. And so where are we today then in terms of how many devices actually work well and could be used as a daily driver? And just what's the status of the project generally? So right now we have Ubuntu Touch 15.04 OTA 3 as our current stable release, and that is 15.04, which is, of course, out of support by Canonical. But it is running on all of the Ubuntu Touch devices that were previously around, so that's all the Meiju and BQ devices. And we also have the Fairphone 2, the Nexus 5, and the OnePlus 1, which I have carried around both the Nexus 5 and the Fairphone 2 as daily drivers at different periods of time. And the Fairphone 2 is really interesting in America since it has no LTE bands, but I made it work. Nice. Very nice. So you mentioned 15.04 and 16.04 there. Well, hang on, we're on 18.04 now. What's going on? Ubuntu Touch has always been a little bit behind the regular Ubuntu release cadence, uh, and that was mainly due to the way that it's released and updated, as well as uh, solving problems with the different application frameworks that people could build to and the click packaging method for apps. So that's a long way of saying it's too much effort and bore ache to <laughs> actually get 1804 running and the fact that you're still stuck on 1504 because well, where is 1604 at the moment? That um, That's the, the target, isn't it? Like how is that actually running on devices? We are working on that right now and we have a list of all of the regressions <laughs> that are in it on GitHub at the moment that we're trying to work through. While Canonical had the project, they had the same problem that we're having, where there were a lot of changes from the 15.04 release up to 16.04, and that wasn't really the best for app developers, since they would need to rebuild their apps. So they kind of got stuck on 15.04 while they uh, worked on snaps, which would kind of solve the problem once they hit 16.04. 
since they could update the base OS independently of all of the apps on top of it. So what are the typical specs that you need to run a good experience on? Like how many cores and how much RAM do you need? There isn't really an exact science to it, especially because of the small amount of devices that Ubuntu Touch runs on because of uh, terrible Android drivers and needing to deal with that mess. But generally, a device with over 2 gigs of RAM is the best sweet spot for it. And CPU cores and everything doesn't... It factors into it, but not quite as much as having that RAM available. Right, so RAM's the, the real benefit there then. Right, and that's generally not seen on Android phones. Yeah, I was going to say, like 2 gig uh, these days seems to be uh, a fairly easily achievable on, on a lot of devices. It does, and we do have devices that only have one gigabyte of RAM because that's how Canonical ships some of their devices. And so do you intend to keep those devices working at all time, or do you think at some point you're going to have to admit defeat, as it were, and retire some, some of the lower spec devices? So we know that at some point there will be a need to retire some of the devices, but for now, 16.04 is running on them because of uh, the decision we made to not continue what Canonical was doing, but continue what we were doing with a new OS as the base. That kind of made it possible for us to use the previous devices and still have 16.04 as the base. And the real reason that we want 16.04 is because of those security updates and patches, of course. So do you have any idea about how many users you have out there? Do you... Do you, are you able to get any sort of count on that, or are you just dependent on people being involved in the project? Uh, and along with that, do you find that you you have users out there that you've simply never met before, and you just bump into somebody and they tell you they're using it, or do you think that it's quite a close-knit community? I know that there are a lot of users in Germany especially, but I'm not in Germany, so I don't run into people randomly using Ubuntu Touch. Um, but I we do have a German users who recount their experience of that happening to them quite a bit. Excellent. We don't have exact numbers of how many users we have. Uh, the push server gives us the best statistics and that uh, devices register with it in order to get notifications. But I unfortunately do not have those right now. So what exactly is the situation with branding? It's something that's confused me over the last year or so. You've got Ubuntu Touch, you've got UbiPorts, um, presumably Canonical is quite defensive about their trademark. Uh, what's the situation with all of that? So the branding is something that has confused a lot of people previously. The gist of it is this. We have the UbiPorts Foundation, which we're required to continue calling it the UbiPorts Foundation, because that's what we called it when we began filing for it, slightly before Canonical dropped the project. And we have Ubuntu Touch, which is the operating system that UbiPorts creates. Canonical is graciously allowing us to use the Ubuntu Touch name. And do you think that they're going to let you use that indefinitely then? Have they kind of granted anything in writing to say that you can call it Ubuntu? Canonical is waiting for the foundation to be filed for until we sign the papers on the Ubuntu Touch name. But for now, yes, we are allowed to use it. Okay, that's good, because that was a worry. I know Canonical are generally all right, um, but uh, you never know what might happen, you know, after an IPO or something like that. So it'd be good to get something in writing if I were you right. as soon as possible. Uh, so how many of you are actually working on it then? I know there's you and Marius and uh, a couple of other guys appear on the regular Q&As on YouTube. So how many in total? Right. So we have a lot of app developers, of course, who are working on creating applications for the platform. We have about nine developers working on the base operating system. 
And we also have developers from Holium who are working with the very low-level Android drivers stuff, which aren't counted in that nine. Well, so there's quite a few of you. And what about the bus factor? And uh, you know, we've talked about this quite a lot with projects going away because they lead dev, uh, their circumstances change or whatever. Uh, how dependent on Marius is it? And um, do you have proper governance? So we have worked a lot in the past few months to try to reduce that bus factor. And at this point, all of our infrastructure is owned by at least two people, minus the domain name which we are currently working on. As for the knowledge, of course we're going to you lose a lot of knowledge when you lose a developer, but we should be able to at this point continue the project on. So you wouldn't be totally knackered if Marius decided to just not do it anymore. No, we would still have all the servers and everything in someone else's hands. You mentioned that you've got lots of app developers working with you. Um, how important do you think that Android apps are to the overall Ubiport's survival? Um, do your users even want Android apps? Is it something that you're being asked for, or do you think it's just an unnecessary part of it? Of course, the first thing that a lot of people ask once they get into the Telegram or IFC room is, so where's WhatsApp? And that is probably one of the most asked questions that we have. So new people a lot of the time will think that Android apps are an extremely novel concept on the platform. Andbox being the thing that makes Android apps run on a normal Linux distribution, which I suppose Ubuntu Touch is. We do have a few changes that we need to make due to us using the Android kernels and the fork, the Android fork of the Linux kernel rather than the generic Linux kernel itself. But it does work roughly the same way you run Android applications on Ubuntu Touch. But that's not going to be stable until you get 16.04 sorted first, right? Correct. And it probably will come after the upgrade of both Mir and Unity 8 to their upstream versions, just because those will make plugging other things into the platform easier. You mentioned Mir there. How up-to-date is the version of Mir that you're shipping compared to the one that's being worked on in Canonical? We are using an older version of Mir, specifically the one that came with Ubuntu Touch before it was dropped by Canonical. And we are planning to upgrade to the newest, uh, latest supported version after we get 16.04 running. However, we decided a few months back that it would be better to take all the software that we had running on top of 15.04 and just try to jump that up to 16.04, which has been a little bit more successful than trying to continue the upstream work. Okay, well... The big question that I have is, what about Unity 8 and Convergence? Um, that was the big selling point of Ubuntu Touch. So where are we with that? Because at the same time that Canonical dropped development of Ubuntu Touch, they also dropped Unity 8. So uh, have you picked that up as well? Because there was that unit project, which I haven't heard anything from lately. So where, where are you with all of that? So at one point, I don't remember the exact date. It was a couple of months ago. The unit project did... Um, decide to roll into Yubiports, so we do now uh, take over the complete ownership of the Unity 8 code base. We do need Unity to run on the phone in order to have the Ubuntu Touch experience, and having it on a desktop to run uh, either Convergence or just because you want to have a desktop with Unity 8 on it is something that we're looking at, but it, again, won't happen until after we ship a release of 16.04. So it's not a priority then? Not at the moment. However, we do have some work to get Unity 8 accepted into Debian upstream. So what about new devices? And I don't mean porting to existing Android devices. I mean, are we ever going to see an OEM deal 
Are we going to see Ubuntu Touch coming out on a phone that you can actually buy? That is something that we're always looking at and looking into. However, it's probably something that'll come after we get 16.04 out and stable. Okay, so it's another one of those at some abstract point in the future. I get it. Um, but what about the Librem 5? That is a phone that is going to run pure OS. Uh, it's the phone from Purism. It's kind of the, the latest hot thing in terms of Linux-based phones. Um, and Ubuntu Touch is going to be available for it, at least according to Todd from Purism. Yes, we did recently announce that partnership with Purism. We're planning to get some development devices or something in stock that we'll be able to work on and bring Ubuntu Touch to the Librem 5. So do you think that when the phone launches, there's going to be a stable ROM available for that phone? That is certainly what we are shooting for. Well, it sounds like a lot of work, but hopefully Purism will help you. And uh, it would be good to see some different OS is available for it. I know that was one of the promises of the original crowdfunder, that it was going to be open to running different OSs. So uh, hopefully it can become the sort of standard target device for stuff and we'll get loads of different ROMs for it. That's the that's my hope anyway. So before we wrap it up, is there anything you want to mention, ways people can help out with the project? So as we're approaching the release of 16.04, we are definitely looking for more people to test the operating system. So if you have the Fairphone 2, the OnePlus One, or the Nexus 5, and you're able to set those aside for testing, or any of the previous devices that came with Ubuntu Touch, you're able to install the OS from UbiPorts on it as well. Okay, well, I'll put a link in the show notes. So thank you very much for coming on and telling us about Ubuntu Touch, and uh, hopefully you'll get 1604 out soon and we'll have you back on. Thanks for having me. It sounds like uh, UbiPorts is doing quite well, tentatively. Yeah, I was surprised that they've managed to be so productive with it because after the bombshell that was last April, I kind of expected it to just sort of fizzle out and die, but they've been growing and they've got a fair bit of money coming in to support the development. And it seems to me, apart from what Purism are doing, which I'm cautiously optimistic about, it seems the best hope for a Linux-based smartphone OS to me. Yeah, it seems to be a very active project with lots of people getting involved, lots of people using it, um, and it seems to have a bright future ahead of it. Yeah, definitely. It's something where my opinion very much shifted after Canonical dropped it, and I now see it through the lens of a community project. And to be honest, I think they've they've taken it places where Canonical didn't even manage mm-hmm. after throwing loads of um, developers at it and with such scant resources that done really, really well. So... Uh, Yeah, do check it out if you've uh, been meaning to. So that will bring us to the end of this episode then. We'll be back in two weeks with the Fostalk Live episode, all being well if the recorder works out and everything. Uh, And I'll be back in a week with quite an interesting Late Night Linux Extra. So do check that one out. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.